Hi there and welcome to the Book Realities Podcast, a series of interviews with independently minded authors where we explore their books, their writing techniques, and what made them become a writer in the first place. I'm your host, Ian Hooper, and as well as being an independent author, I also run the Book Reality Experience. Hi everybody and welcome to the latest in our author interviews of book reality authors. And today we're joined by V.M. Knox, or rather less formally, Vicky. Hello Vicky, how are you? Hi Anne. So how's, how's life and where are you speaking to us from? I live in the Southern Highlands of New South Wales and that's an area around Barrel. Excellent stuff. And were you born and bred there or what's the story about Vicky Knox? I was born in Sydney and grew up there. I went to two different independent schools, uh, Ravenswood and Abbotsley, and I loved Abbotsley. I better not say that, had I? You better cut that bit out. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I did love Abbotsley. And um, and then when I left there, I did the thing that my mother wanted me to do. I went kindergarten teaching. And a year into that, I thought, I don't think I want to do this which is a nice way of saying I didn't want to blow noses and white bottoms. (laughs) Um, So then I didn't know what I was going to do. So I went overseas for a while and just moved, just went around and went to England and Europe and whatnot. When I got back, my mother said, well, I don't care what you do as long as you don't go nursing. And I have to say it had never occurred to me to go nursing. And, of course, being the contrary beast that I am, I went, nursing never even considered it so that's what I did and to everyone's great astonishment I actually got through it because it was pretty tough in those days hospital based and um, yeah I got there and and then I got involved in occupational health and safety and I went to Melbourne to stay with an old pal and because I'd been a singer at school uh, her husband was involved with the Australian Opera and singing teaching. He said, what on earth are you doing doing this? You should be singing. And so that started a somewhat late career getting into the opera. So then you get too old, so the wrinkles come, and uh, that started the writing. Well done. So when you say that you were into opera, you were a soprano or what? Yes, yes. Uh, what they call a spinto soprano, which is sort of the big stuff, you know, the Madame Butterflies. and the... I wasn't always a spinto. I was sort of more lyric coloratura as a young person. But as you get older, your voice develops. And uh, so I was able to do some of the more bigger roles. Yeah. Excellent. Well done. And then you said that you got into writing. So had writing been a continuous passion throughout this in the background or was writing something not that you came to? Not at all. Never even thought about it. Funnily enough, I do remember at school winning essay competitions and I wrote a children's book when I was, uh, and I've still got the handwritten manuscript of that. One day I might give it to you. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, just put it away, never took it seriously. And then I was working at my husband's business um, and he wanted a procedure manual. Now, interestingly, procedure manuals are, generally speaking, the most boring, inane things to that people want, and then when they get them, never want to read them. So I decided to make it funny. And I thought, well, I'll read it if it's funny. And I really enjoyed the writing process. And that started me writing. 
Now to go from a procedural menu to your first novel, which is actually a World War II based murder, mystery, crime, thriller, espionage laden with a central character who is a Church of England vicar, that, that's a leap. So how do you go from the procedural manual to the first of what became the Clement Wisdom novels? So actually the first book I ever wrote has never been published, neither the second book. Um, they were both set in the post-Napoleonic period. Uh, it was a female main character. She was a guerrilla fighter. And I really enjoyed writing those books and, and went to Spain, of course, any excuse to go, and <laughs> really enjoyed that. But I, it, they were my nursery because I didn't go off and do creative writing courses. I just started writing. And so I made every mistake that a writer can make but they were my, my nursery school. And, and so I, when I had finally finished those two books and realised that I didn't think they were going to take off, it was then that I heard the inspiration for the Clement Wisdom series. And that was watching a programme called QI. And Stephen Fry asked the question, who or what were Churchill scallywags? And they turned out to be these clandestine cells of guerrilla fighters set up by the British government in anticipation of the Nazi invasion in the English summer of 1940. And what it said was that uh, when I did some research on it, was that uh, only the local senior policemen knew the identity of these men, so secret were these organisations. Uh, however, when the Germans landed, that policeman became the cell's first victim. Now, of course, we know with hindsight that the Nazis never did invade, but they certainly had a plan to do so. And therefore, the local senior policeman never did get bumped off. But I thought it would it would make a great murder mystery story if they had been, and actually they were, um, called up on the 7th of September, but then stood down quite quickly. Um, and so I decided to bump off the local senior policeman and make it a, a murder mystery. So when our man goes to do the deed, the, the local senior policeman's already dead. And Clement saw the light of day through a system of hybrid publishing that you took your book to a company which we're not going to name for various legal reasons but what was your experience of the whole hybrid publishing world initially frightful frightful that's a very, the good, only word that's I a very good summary um <laughs> why what what happened because i know that there are people out there who may want to be traditionally published but haven't found the niche or get the rejection letters that say, oh, this isn't on trend, etc. It's nothing to do about the quality of the writing. But you decided to go down the hybrid pathway, but you had a bad experience. Yes, yes. And then I decide, I mean, I really don't really want to talk too much about them, but um, I, I've developed a theory and it is a theory and you may choose to cut this out of this recording, but um, I actually believe these people charge huge amounts of money. Now, I didn't pay a huge amount. It was a big amount, but not a huge amount. And these days, from what I hear, some people in the UK are paying around £8,000 to get books published. And I, I just I find that just staggering because I have a theory that that they actually don't want you to sell well. 
this, and my reasoning for this is because these people charge a one-off fee. So if your book does well and they have to do a second or third print run, then that's going to be at their cost. So if they think that they can take on a book and you, all you're going to do is sell 10 copies to your family, then clearly they've made a lot of money out of you. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know, but I didn't really get much in the way of royalties. And so I was quite disheartened about the whole business. Um, not long after that, I developed cancer. And so writing and books and everything. And, and interestingly, I'd actually written the second book by then. Um, but my once 2017 came, I just had to focus on staying alive. And so it wasn't until 2019 that the first two book, the first book, which I then rewrote and retitled, um, came out, and the second book a month later with you. So how did you decide to go with us? Where did you find us? Or how did you decide to put your foot back into that potentially piranha-laden lake? Yes, it is. a. I mean, I never actually sent um, the second book or indeed the third or the fourth to any traditional publishers. Once I found you, I decided to stay with you. And uh, so you know, the, the, the second, third and fourth books have never been in any slush file anywhere on any agent's desk. Um, I decided to do that because once I got over cancer, there was no guarantee that it wasn't going to come back. And I just thought, look, traditional publishing takes a very long time. And did I have that long time? Was I better to just stay with what I knew? And so that's what I did. How I got to you uh, and I will tell you, I don't know whether this, again, whether you might want to cut this out, but I had been in Tasmania and I'd seen uh, a magazine in a hotel that was advertising a company called... 40, 40, 40, 40, 40 degrees south. 40 degrees south. 40 degrees south. And so I rang them and they said, uh, well, we only publish Tasmanian books, but we recommend this person. And it was you. And I rang, and as you might recall, the reception on the phone was appalling <laughs> because you were away at the time. And then I had a bit of a setback with my health, so it was then a few months before I got back to you. If not, I just don't remember how long, but it might have been a considerable period. Yeah. And it was very good that you did because we actually ended up, you being from Sydney and me living in Western Australia, and yet we met in London when we were both over there at the same time. Yes, yes, amazing. Quite nice. So the book, the first book, the Clement Wisdom Opener, which is called In Spite of All Terror, centred around these scallywags, of which for anybody that's into their history, the old politician uh, Sir Tony Benn had been a scallywag. There were numerous uh, establishment figures in the UK that had volunteered for this when they were much younger. Mm. From there, we take Clement forward. Can I just add one thing? Yeah. There's a man, I won't say his surname because he's very shy. His, his first name is Ron. He's now 100 years old. And I have a photograph of him, which unfortunately he won't allow me to put on any website. But I have the photo of him reading my books. And he is possibly the last remaining surviving auxilia. Oh, wow. It, yes, yeah, it, quite extraordinary. I, I got quite a thrill out of that when I received 
an email from a man who knows him and who's done a lot of research on the auxiliary units. And he got the photograph for me. And there is Ron holding in spite of all terror. Fantastic. And he's read all of them. And it's great, isn't it? Just love it. It's, there's something quite special when someone reaches out to praise your work. In fact, well, I'll ask you that. What's the best feedback you've had with regards to your books? Because I should say that we've got four of the Clement Wisdom series out now. We've got In Spite of All Terror, If Necessary Alone, which was set in northern Scotland, uh, Where Death and Danger Go, which is set in Cambridgeshire, or starts in Cambridgeshire, and then West Wind Clear, which interestingly is set around the Singapore Northern Territory of Australia stretch with the Japanese in the Pacific. Um, so what's the best feedback you've had for the series? I mean, I get some marvellous comments. And, and I think I posted something recently that I'm, I think the person is in the UK, but sorry, it might be America. Um, and they said uh, that the four books are some of the best books they've ever read. And I thought that was an extraordinary thing to say. I've got some really devoted readers out there who say lovely things. Um, with the fourth book, and I knew that this fourth book was going to probably appeal to a less number of people because it isn't, I would say, a traditional murder mystery or thriller like the first two. Funnily enough, the third book is probably my favourite because it's intrigue and I like the idea of the intrigue. Uh, the fourth book is probably for people like me who's a, a nut about mathematics and cryptology, um, which I really enjoy. But it's probably too purist for the traditional murder mystery reader. So I probably have to get back a bit more to that for the next one. <laughs> I must admit the West Wind Clear is, it definitely shifts, it shifts perspective from the European theatre of war to the uh, Pacific theatre of war. But it also features a lot of people who were real life mm. within the war effort within Australia and within the cryptology effort within Australia. So it is, it's almost, um, it's gone from a murder mystery to more espionage and in-depth, but Clement's still at the heart of it. And I think a lot of people have just warmed to Clement a yes. lot. Yes. We should mention that, um, speaking of feedback, you your second book was nominated for, a, or was given rather, a Publishers Weekly starred review, which is no mean feat. In the world of book reviews, a PW starred review is the equivalent of an Oscar. You must have been quite proud about that. Uh, I, I didn't realise it, and I didn't even see the star until you uh, highlighted it. Um, so, I, you know, I mean, I was quite chuffed about that, but I think probably that's why I need to get back to more murder mystery stuff because that's, I think, what people want. Interestingly, I have a reasonable readership in the USA and that surprised me because the, the first three stories don't involve America or Americans in any way and it surprised me how devoted some of the USA readers are um, and Canadian readers. But I decided with the fourth one that therefore I should have at least one American, if not, you know, a couple to to acknowledge my American readership. Uh, and so the lovely Joe Watkins appears. So I'm rather hopeful that Joe Watkins might appear in the next one. Very good. Now, when we were talking about your writing and hopefully you're going to write the next one very quickly. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> what is your work schedule when you're writing? Do you have to have 
a set room or a set place? Do you have to have a certain drink? Do you have to have a hat? <laughs> I never say no to a gin and tonic in the <laughs> evening, but I also don't say no to tea. I drink volumes of tea when I'm writing. <laughs> um, I do have a study and, and I am lucky that way. We're actually, we bought this house for two reasons. The shed out the back for my husband, uh, which is more than a shed. It could take seven cars. Um, <laughs> but also a designated study for me. So it is, you can see behind me all sorts of things on the walls and my lovely statue of, of uh, Winston Churchill and all sorts of things. So, yes, I do. I'm lucky. I do have a designated study. Um, sorry, I've forgotten what else you said. <laughs> um, do you have a routine? I mean, do you get up at seven and write until 11 and have a break? Or is it as and when you can fit it in? Or? Yeah. Um, when I'm really writing, you know, when I write from scratch, I, because the books are historically based, I I do a lot of research. I'll find what triggers a story is sometimes a really minor historical event. Now, look, the auxiliary units, you couldn't say they were minor. They were a big event. But for the second book, the two historical events that underpin the story is a strafing of a lighthouse on Stromer Island on the 22nd of February 1941. It didn't cause any damage and it didn't hurt anyone. So why did they do it? There's no real answer to that. But that underpins the story for the second book. Um, there is an off-page historical event, which were the raids on the Lofoten Islands on the 4th of March, 41, um, that, that was highly successful. And there was a boat there that was scuttled, but not before two rather brave British um, sailors jumped on board this sinking boat called the Krebs and found um, Enigma Rotors and an Enigma code book, which certainly catapulted the... Um, solving of the naval enigma codes uh for the um particularly for the uh, atlantic the convoys crossing the atlantic that saved a lot of lives there so that is also whilst it isn't part of the story it does underpin the story to some extent um, it, for the third book where the um, german spy joseph jacobs jumped out of um, a heinkel I learned, uh, I knew that he had jumped into a field in Cambridgeshire and broken his leg on landing um, and was there overnight in a very cold field uh, until early morning when he fired a pistol several times to alert some nearby farm workers. But I discovered in researching uh, Joseph Jacobs that he'd actually damaged his foot as he got out of the aeroplane. I understand the opening from a heinkel is very small and so he did some considerable damage to his foot as he jumped out. Now, that's a fairly minor thing, but because it's minor, my brain says, was there someone who pushed him? Was there someone else on the plane who pushed him out of the plane? And so that underpins the story for book three, that minor thing. Yeah. So on all of that research, what's the most intriguing or interesting fact or thing that stopped you in your tracks? I'd have to say the double cross system. There's a marvellous book by J.C. Masterton called The Double Cross System. I think it's uh, I think it's hard to come by now. I have a copy. Uh, I might take that one too. Um, about the double cross system uh, where they 
they knew who was coming into the country because there was a double agent, um, codenamed Snow, who was selling identities to the Abva. So as soon as these people came with ration books and money and transmitters and maps and all the rest of it, and as soon as they used that ration book locally, then MI5 would be able to go and pick them up because the names were were sold by Snow to the Germans but provided to MI5 so they knew who was coming. Um, and they were um, encouraged, we'll say, to become double agents because otherwise it was going to be the hangman's noose. <laughs> I found that really fascinating. But I do find coding. Uh, I'm absolutely enthralled by coding. I, I just, I really love it. And I loved the fact that with the Japanese codes, because the Japanese codes are character-based, they're syllabic. It's a syllabic language. And so Morse code had to change to become Kana code, which is syllabic based, and the Japanese naval codes were all numeric, whereas the Enigma codes are alpha. So it's a because German is a Romanized alphabet. So of course, all the Enigma stuff deals with the alphabet that we know, but you couldn't use that with the Japanese codes because it doesn't use it. It's a character based language. It's not a Romanized language. So that was really interesting. I love the fact that you've got so far into this. Um, I must admit, from my perspective, the, the cryptology or the cryptology side of life is amazing because I once had the pleasure of going to um, GCHQ uh, as part of what I used to do for a living. Yes. I mean, Bletchley Park is a fantastic place. Um, I've been there four times now. And uh, there's this funny photograph of me sitting. You, if you've been there lately, you'll know that they've set up like um, radios that they listened into to pick up and you can tune the dial to pick up the Morse code being transmitted and then you write it down and if you're moderately quick at it, you get a, you know, thumbs up, you've done well, girl. And um, because there's, I think, only two or three of these things set up, there's a, a lot of tourists who want to sit there and try their hand. And so when I got up to let a young man behind me sit down, he said to me, did you used to do this during the war? <laughs> Yes, thanks very much for that. <laughs> I went out. I went out and bought new wrinkle cream immediately. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. It's like, what did you do during the war? I wasn't in the war. Yeah, yeah. thanks very much. <laughs> I wasn't even born. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic! But, uh, but it did make me worried. I thought, oh dear, new wrinkle cream. <laughs> So what's next then? Um, are you going to do the fifth Clement or have you oh, got yes. any other projects on yeah. the go? Yes. Oh, look, I will do the fifth Clement because I had actually originally, as I think you know, intended to just make it a trilogy. But I got to the end of, of book three and as we know, we sort of, he walks away a bit. Um, and, and I started getting emails from um, readers saying, come on, we want a fourth. And, and one even said something like, you know, back to the board, VM knots, off you go and don't lift your nose until it's done. Um, so I'm not quite sure. I think probably number five will still be in the Pacific. I think there's some nice characters there. I'm very fond of Tom Archer. I think he's a lovely character. And... Um, and I think Joe Watkins uh, as well. There's there's a variety of things that I can do if I stay with the espionage thing. Um, maybe I might do the escape from Corregidor. Uh, maybe that. But we'll see. And, look, I've got other ideas, some things that I would like to do. 
Um, I've always particularly wanted to do one about um, art fraud. Um, I learned that, as we all know from the Cambridge Six, uh, I'm sorry, the Cambridge Five, <laughs> that's Charles Cumming book, um, from the Cambridge Five, uh, that Anthony Blunt was curator of the Courtauld Gallery and he was the world expert on Poussin paintings. And it, it occurred to me that I thought, okay, well, that's interesting because we know that art auctions are often used to launder money. So um, maybe I could sort of use a laundering money to supply a USSR sort of ring that's set up in London or something like that. I haven't done a lot of research on that just yet, but that's always been at the back of my mind that I'd like to do something like that. And I think it's time. I won't kill off Clement. He, he will certainly live to see throughout the war. <clears throat> and we're only at 1942, so who knows? There might be a few more yet. But um, I would like to pursue something else. Oh, well, that's fantastic. And we should say at this point, there was a recent report came out about and it came out during the merger of Simon and & Schuster and Penguin in America, which people are getting quite het up about. But it stated that the average traditionally published book sold less than 50. And in fact, depending on the reading of it, sold less than a dozen copies. And it was a shockwave that went through and it was on Twitter and it was on various social media reports. But it was outrageous that traditionally published authors on average, we're selling such so few books. And we should say that you've sold thousands as an independently published author. That's Absolutely fun, thousands. <laughs> That's fun, isn't it? <laughs> it is. And so people shouldn't be scared that independently publishing is not a back alley because you cannot get a traditional mm. deal. Independently publishing is a choice. And with appropriately marketing and appropriate word of mouth, then thousands upon thousands of books are within your grasp. So yes. um, congratulations yes. on that, by the way. Thanks. Uh, look, I do think that the uh, self-publishing was once thought of as the elephant in the room. And I think, sadly, in Australia, that is still probably the way we think. In Britain and certainly in America, that has changed enormously. And so... I think gradually self-publishing will become um, a force to be reckoned with. Uh, I think the the idea that only Great Aunt Maud will buy your book if you're self-published or that you are unsuccessful with the traditional publishers, therefore you've turned to uh, self-publishing, is, is going. I think that's going. I wish the bookshops uh, thought differently but because they are still quite... Um, focused on traditional publishers. In my own area, I, funnily enough, worked it out just today because I was talking to a lady I met in, in our village uh, about it and, and um, I totted it up that I have sold somewhere between two and 300 copies locally. And because the local bookshop won't keep self-published books, that is around about... Um, four to five thousand dollars worth of book sales that she's missed out on. Mm. It's an intriguing thing, especially when we talk about certain bookshops like the bookshop in Darwin, which we should give a call out to. Yes, they're um, fantastic. Yeah. They hosted a book launch for you. You travelled up there. There were um, 
tens, 20, 30, 40, 50 people turned up uh, and they kept turning up and they kept buying your book. And so where you might think you might get half a dozen people, you had four dozen people yes. in a bookshop there to listen to you about your books and to buy your books. So everything's possible if they can just change their mindset mm. like certain bookshops like the one in Darwin did. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yes. Right. Uh, well, thank you ever so much for your time today. What we're going to do, if you're willing, is end up with a series of little quickfire questions. Okay. If you'd like to. Okay. So, author V.M. Knox, author of the Clement Wisdom series. What is your favourite book? I think I have two. One is The History of SOE by M.R. Foote, M. M. R.D. Foote. And the other one, I'll just have to get it, is, um, oh, sorry, this one. All right. Very good. The one that we were just talking about. Uh, yeah. This one is The Double Cross System by J.C. Masterman. Fantastic. And as you can see, it's only a little book, but it was absolutely fascinating about how they got these information, misinformation across to uh, the Nazis and uh, how successful it was. And uh, it, I can just say that there was one who was never discovered by the Avvar. His real name was uh, Wolf Schmidt. His um, code name was Tate. And he requested 20,000 pounds in 1941. 20,000 pounds was an astronomical figure. And interestingly, a Japanese diplomat carried it from Germany into England in 1941. Well, 40. 1940. Yeah. Very good. Amazing. Right. Now, if you've got one, and I will forgive you if you go, you don't have one at all, but what is your least favourite book? I'm not good on chick lit. Okay. I won't say which one, but as a genre, I can't cope with school reunions of all these women coming together to gossip. It's unimportant. Okay. <laughs> um, creatively, cre I'll try and say that word again. Creatively, what turns you on? Um, history and okay. good music. History and music, excellent. And conversely, uh, and this can be in any realm, what turns you off? Large gatherings of, of sort of social women's activities, that, that where women who've got brains get relegated to making, for example, gingerbread houses or knitting. Look, nothing against that, if that's your thing. But if it isn't your thing, being forced into, because you happen to be female, into doing such pursuits is mind-numbingly boring. Give me cryptology any day. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, Season-wise, summer or winter? For writing? Oh, um, for, for anything, just in general. Oh, summer. Oh, summer. More heat, the better. <laughs> On a completely free day to do anything you want, who do you spend it with? My daughters and my grandchildren. Mountains or oceans? That's a hard one because until recently it's been mountains, but now that I've lived in the mountains, well, in the countryside, I'm really craving the sea.
And what is your favourite movie? Classic, Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, modern, Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> oh, very good. What song, if you've, if you've only got, now this is going to be difficult for you, I know with your music background, but if you've only got one song to listen to for the rest of your life, what would it be? The Love Duet at the end of Act One in Madame Butterfly with Victoria de Los Angeles and Yossi Biorling singing. Wow. <laughs> Who makes you laugh the most? My daughter Elizabeth. And what smell do you love? Um, hmm. I, I, jasmine, I think. Jasmine flowers. Hmm. And what smell do you hate? It's a few, isn't there? You know, sort of anything to do with sort of food poisoning comes to mind. Okay. Both ways. <laughs> <laughs> Moving swiftly on. Um, <laughs> other than the professions that you have done, what would you like to attempt? I would like to do art history. I would very much like to study the, the hidden messages behind art. I think that's fascinating. And what profession would you not like to do? I have a daughter who's a lawyer and I know how hard she works. And whilst I did at times think I would like to do law, I think that is the least, I, I wouldn't want to do what she does. Okay. And lastly, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you finally arrive at the pearly gates? Well done, good and faithful servant. Oh, nice work. Victoria, thank you ever so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Um, I hope to look forward to the Clement Wisdom 5 or whatever other book you decide to, to write in the coming months. Uh, thanks very much indeed. Thank you for inviting me on. No worries. Take care. Hey, thanks for listening to this latest episode of Book Realities, our interviews with author series. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and turn your notifications on so that you never miss any content updates from us. If you liked this episode, leave us a rating or a review as it really helps the podcast's visibility, as does passing the pod on to any writers or author friends that you may have who you know will be interested in it. And join our exclusive mailing list at www.bookreality.com. The next episode will be released this time next week, but until then, stay safe and well. All the best.